Hi, welcome. This is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. You know, the gospel this week is about Jesus, and we're still in chapter one of St. Mark's gospel. It's about Jesus making a leper clean. You know, in ancient Israel, it's pretty clear that if you touched a leper, he became unclean, and you had to go through this whole process to be made clean again. And cleanness, being clean, was really the entry point to how you could go into a temple and participate in community life. Because if you were unclean, well, you're stuck like the leper is on the outskirts of communal life. There may have been leper colonies. We remember St. Damien of Molokai and that leper colony, a, a place where they're quarantined. Maybe these lepers just wandered around begging. That could be also... Uh, there's a lot we don't know apparently about leprosy and uh, how they treated him in the first century at Jesus' time. And probably the disease is what we know as Hansen's disease. It's treatable in the modern world, but it wasn't treatable in the first century. In fact, um, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 5, and I think everybody remembers the story of Naaman the Syrian who is a leper general of Syria, and his little slave girl, who's an Israelite uh, girl, tells him, we have prophets in Israel that can heal you. And so he goes down to Israel with a letter from his king demanding that the king of Israel heal him. And it says in 2 Kings 5, starting at verse 6, he brought the king of Israel the letter which read, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you, then you may cure him of leprosy. When he read the letter, the king of Israel tore his garments and exclaimed, Am I a god with power over life and death? That this man should send someone for me to cure him of leprosy? Take note, you can see he's only looking for a quarrel with me. So the king was uh, bowing out. But Elisha, the great prophet, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his garments, a sign of despair, and he sent word to the king. Why have you torn your garments? Let him come to me and find out that there is a prophet in Israel. Because Elisha heals him. And do you remember in the story, uh, Naaman goes to Elijah's door, knocks on the door, and Elijah says, yeah, 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 go down to the river Jordan, uh, dip down seven times, or uh, and you'll be cleansed. And Naaman's insulted, but he goes and does it anyway, and sure enough, he's cleansed. And he takes earth from Israel home to Syria so it can always offer a sacrifice to the God of Israel. Did you notice, though, Elisha did not touch Naaman because it's about uncleanness. But Jesus' response in the healing today is very different. He doesn't always touch the people he heals. Sometimes he heals at a distance and says, go home, your, your daughter is, is healed. He exercises at a distance with a Syrophoenician woman. Um, I think that's the one where the, the woman's daughter is uh, released from a demon. But here, he makes it a point to reach out and touch the leper because and the early church picked up on this, is when God touches you, he makes you clean. The unclean does not make God 
unclean. And so if Jesus pronounces clean, then it's clean for all. That's why in the early church, they decided they didn't need to keep kosher. We're going to talk about cleanliness and eating and how this whole idea of what God touches makes something clean. Well, in the gospel, Jesus tells the leper, don't tell anybody. The idea of the messianic secret, let's keep this secret, don't spread it around. Because Jesus doesn't want the wrong idea to get out about him that, um, you know, he'll draw people for the wrong reason. So he's, he's trying to keep under the radar. But of course, everybody in Mark talks to everybody about what Jesus did. And then Jesus tells him to go see the priest. Because in Leviticus chapter 14, which has some of the laws of clean and unclean, uh, there's this whole process for how this leper will be reintegrated uh, into the uh, Jew, Judean community. You know, the early church saw the connection between cleanness and uncleanness and the leprosy of the soul. Uh, in, in Titus's letter, he says, all things are clean to the clean. And that's where we're going to take off. And we're going to talk about St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians because it's about dining with demons and imitating Christ. It's about cleanness and uncleanness. And so with this idea of Jesus, who has made everything clean to God, um, how does St. Paul think about that? Because he's a devout Pharisee. So we're going to take a moment, and we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians and we're going to spend some time talking about sacrifice, cleanness, uncleanness, and the Eucharist. Stay tuned. And so Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul spent a lot of time thinking about the Corinthians. It was a kind of a troubled community. And in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 31 through chapter 11, verse 1, Father uh, St. Paul is talking about avoiding giving offense, avoiding scandalizing people. So here's what the reading was this Sunday. Brothers and sisters, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Avoid giving offense, whether to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in every way, not seeking my own benefit, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so he's asking the Corinthians not to offend Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. And so why would any of these people be offended? Well, this is, you know, when we they put these little pericopes together, it's all in context in, in the scriptures. And oftentimes, if you're reading through the scriptures with the church at Sunday Mass, go back and read before and after these readings to kind of get the context. Here's the run-up to the, to the uh, Corinthians reading today. St. Paul, starting at chapter 10, verse 15, 16 verses before uh, today's reading. I am speaking to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
because the loaf of bread is one. We, though many, are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Well, we've heard this before, so now we turn to verse 18. Look at Israel according to the flesh. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So what am I saying? The meat sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I mean that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to become participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and also the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and of the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealous anger? Are we stronger than he? So this whole thing about giving offense to Jews or Greeks to the church of God, just walk through it. The first part is this uh, bread that we eat. Isn't it participation in the body of Christ? The blood that we drink isn't a participation in the sacrifice and the blood of Christ, the cup we drink. So remember that the Eucharist is an oblation. An oblation's an, an ancient idea. Uh, and it's really cross-cultural in the ancient world. Uh, an oblation is where you get part of the sacrifice and the God gets part of the sacrifice. So for instance, the Greeks understood oblation. They had meals with gods. And that's what St. Paul's talking about was when they sacrificed to their gods, demons. And if you ever read any Greek mythology, you know, all these gods, Aphrodite, the whole crowd of them, are really very demonic. It's how they think about gods. And that's how the Christians and the Jews thought about their gods, as there were demons. But that the idea of the oblation, that you were eating and feasting with the God, was very much alive. So this is a little bit from the third book of the Iliad, which is 800 years before St. Paul is, is writing. And it's about... A, a, an oblation that's made to sacri to honor a deal or to make whole, sacred a deal between the Greeks and the Trojans where Menelaus, Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, Menela Menelaus is going to fight it out with Paris, winner take all. Remember, Helen was Menelaus's wife. Paris stole her away, and that's what made a thousand ships sail to Troy. But then, just before they're going to fight to the death, here's the sacrifice they make. Agamemnon spoke, then slashed the ram's throat and put the gasping animals on the ground, their proud temper undone by wetted bronze. Then they all filled their cups with wine from the bowl and poured libations to the gods, eternal and pray, Greek and Trojan alike in words like these. Zeus Almighty and most glorious, and all you other immortal gods, whoever breaks this oath and truce, may their brains spill to the ground like this wine, theirs and their children's, and may other men master their wives. So the idea is you kill a sheep, and it's uh, the blood is, is given to the god, to Zeus in this case. Then they, eat, they roast and eat the, the, the mutton. They pour out some of the wine from their cups, and they drink some of it. It's an oblation. Well, in Judaism, there were oblations also where you'd bring like Passover is a perfect example, an oblation. The lamb is taken to the temple where its throat is cut, the blood is drained from it. Part of it is given to the priest. 
Part of it is thrown on the altar, which is like a big fiery grill that immolates it and sends it up to God. And then the other part goes home for the, the Passover meal. If you remember going back to the sacrifice of Cain and Abel in chapter four of Genesis, to remember they both put their sacrifices on the altar and burn them up so that they're taken up to God. Well, some goes to God, some goes to us. That's what an oblation is. So what does that sound like to you? That the night before Jesus died, he took bread and wine, said, this is my body, this is my blood, and then everybody eats. The next day, he sacrificed on the cross. What makes the cross a sacrifice is the self-offering at the Last Supper. What makes it an oblation is that Jesus' body is sacrificed on the cross, risen from the dead, and then taken up to heaven. You see, you throw a ram on a fire, you burn it up, the smoke goes up to heaven, Jesus gets thrown on the altar of the cross, he's raised up and then taken up into heaven. It's the completion of the sacrifice. But the Eucharist that St. Paul is talking about is about the what makes it an oblation. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so to participate in the body, and we are all part of the body as, as Christians risen from the dead with Jesus, this participation is the key word that we Catholics use in a sacramental understanding that a sacrament participates in God. Um, what, where do you draw the line? If you had to make this a, a, a mathematical equation, what does that mean? Um, don't have a mathematical equation for you. Sacraments are the reality of this oblation. But the same thing St. Paul says applies to if you go and you have a meal of what's been sacrificed to the demons. And so in the ancient world, I, I talked about the Iliad and this sacrifice on the plain of Troy 800 years before Paul wrote for 1 Corinthians. But in Corinth, people would offer animal sacrifices. They'd be offered at various temples. And then the meat would be partly immolated, and then the rest would go out into a market and be sold. And so these sacrifices were wound into the food stuff that people would buy at the market. If you wanted to have some mutton or some beef or uh, pork, if you're a Gentile, um, all of these things are sacri sacrificed in these uh, shrines in Corinth. And so in 1 Corinthians, following uh, verse 22, it's uh, St. Paul saying, well, what do you do? Um, if you go and you buy meat that may have been sacrificed to, a, to the, the God in the temple, the demon in the temple, he says, are you permitted to do that? Because if you dine at a demon's table, you're participating in the demon. Just like when you dine at the Eucharistic table, you're participating in God. So St. Paul says, well, the truth is there's nothing there. Um, these, it's not that demons don't exist, but they're not gods. They don't have God's 
power. And so since nothing happens, you're free to eat the meat. But what happens if it causes scandal? Because you remember what Paul says, avoid giving offense, whether to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. So if you're going to eat pig or pork sacrificed to the gods in front of a Jew, you're going to give offense. And that's what we call scandal. Scandal is not a very well-defined de- uh, thing. A lot of people think, and with some reason, that Joe Biden promoting abortion and going to mass is scandalous. What the bishops have to decide whether or not just letting it go on does less damage uh, than than calling uh, pro-abortion politicians on it. See, that's always the problem of scandal. How do you weigh it? And it goes right back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how Paul kind of reasons through this idea. Um, and so everybody has their own judgment about whether or not allowing a Catholic politician that supports abortion to go to communion is scandalous or not. It is scandalous, but the question is whether it does more damage to stop it than to permit it. And so that becomes the bishop's uh, judgment, and obviously they've made a judgment. And it's really their judgment, um, not mine. So scandal, the idea of scandal that St. Paul talks about is very much alive today. But also in the past, scandal um, is for the Greeks. So let's say it's okay, and St. Paul says it. You go into the market, you buy some meat, you take it home, you eat it. Nobody's the wiser, nobody's scandalized. But what if you get invited over to somebody's house and they're a pagan? They said, yeah, we just sacrificed this bull to Zeus. Come on, we're having a sacrificial meal. He says at that point you should bow out because it makes it seem like what you do with the Eucharist is the same thing that they're doing um, with uh, the sacrificed pig or the bull or the lamb uh, to Zeus. And so he tells early Christians, again in that chapter 10, uh, not to do that. And so how do you sacrifice, how do you uh, scandalize other Christians? Very much alive today. Um, and so what do you do? And it's always going to be a judgment, um, in this case, for the bishops. And so, at least in our case, for the bishops. Uh, but what St. Paul says is, is you got to pick a side. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, 21 centuries later, we're having the same struggles as St. Paul is having. And I know a lot of Catholics don't understand it, but um, they, I think they really just do understand it. And they understand that if, if um, President Biden is excommunicated, what that says to the non-Catholic world about the desire of the Catholic Church to weaponize the Eucharist and control public life in the country. And remember, the oldest prejudice in this country is not against African Americans. The oldest prejudice is against Catholics. The Puritans brought it with them long before there were slaves brought into this country. And anti-Catholicism is alive and well in the country. And if the big objection of the non-Catholic is, is that the Pope wants to control what everybody thinks and does, I hope you understand why the bishops are reluctant to use um, their authority in this matter. You know, it's interesting because canon law does not require the excommunication of somebody who promotes abortion. Just 
uh, says that procuring an abortion, that's buying an abortion, paying for an abortion, having an abortion, that can result in latente sententiae excommunication, which is excommunication by the act itself. And so for the people that have done that, fortunately in this country and in this diocese, every priest in the confessional has the authority from their bishop to set aside that excommunication, receive the person's um, heartfelt confession, and permit him back to the Eucharist. You know, God, Christ cannot change our past. He can change how we think about our past. And seeing God's mercy and a way forward in the world is what the gospel brings into people's lives. And so this whole idea of, of, that St. Paul talks about in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians about scandal and participating in the, um, uh, the meals of demons. You know, isn't it interesting that even when people think they leave these things behind by walking away from religion, that they're still concerned uh, with what they eat and drink. For instance, vegans feel that when they, when they eat uh, meat, they're participating in the brutal uh, slaughter of animals. And so they'll avoid even eggs and dairy products like milk and cheese. Um, vegetarians will avoid uh, meat, but I think some of them will eat the dairy products. But this idea of clean food has been with us. And it isn't just St. Paul. It really goes back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 31. And uh, I'm going to run through a little Bible history here uh, so, you, so you get St. Paul's thinking on all of this. So if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, you're going to read this. God blessed them and God said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and all the living things that crawl on the earth. God also said, see, I give you every seed bearing plant on all the earth and every tree that has seed bearing fruit on it to be your food. And to all the wild animals, all the birds of the air, and all the living creatures that crawl on the earth, I give all the green plants for food. And so it happened. God looked at everything he had made over all six days and found it very good. I hope you recognize that, as that's just right after, this pericope is right after uh, the creation of man and woman in the first creation story told in Genesis chapter 1. But I want to point out something about verses 29 and 30. Did you see what God did? He said to human beings, you can eat of every seed-bearing plant and seed-bearing fruit. That's your food. Every other living creature gets the green stuff, lettuce and browse and grass. Do you see he's created two different food sources for human beings versus the other animals according to Genesis 1? Because man, man and woman, are not supposed to be in competition with the animals. Um, they're supposed to have dominion over it. They're like gardeners. They don't compete. So what happens? Well, remember, Eve and Adam eat the fruit from the tree. They're permitted fruit, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's eating that's their downfall because they've disconnected 
the idea of eating from the word of God because God tells them not to do it. So is the cause of the human fall in the eyes of scripture, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or is it in Adam and Eve not eating, not listening to God when they eat, deciding what goes in and out of their mouths or into their mouths? You know, it's not till chapter nine of the book of Genesis that God gives human beings permission, this is after the flood in Noah, to eat meat. That's when meat eating comes into the world, according to Genesis. And you see how the world's fallen? In Genesis 1, human beings get seed-bearing plants and seed-bearing fruit. The animals get the grass and the trees and stuff. Now the animals eat human beings, and human beings eat animals by chapter 9 of Genesis. And so it's in, this is all in the Torah, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's when the food laws come in. And God once again says, you can eat this, you can't eat that. You can't eat shellfish, you can't eat swine. These are the animals you can eat. These are the fruits and things that you can eat. And that's the whole point of kosher. It's going back to Genesis 1 and God ordering how human beings eat. But they could still eat lamb. They could still eat beef. You just can't have a cheeseburger. You can't mix dairy and meat under kosher. Let that sink in for a minute. And then let me take you to the present. So St. Paul talking about the Eucharist, the body and blood of Christ, bread and wine. What's bread made from? What's wine made from? Bread is from a seed-bearing plant, wheat. Wine is from a seed-bearing fruit, grapes. So in Jesus, chooses bread and wine, and that becomes the sign of his body and blood. He's making, in his sacrifice, a pre-lapsarian meal. He's eating a meal and asking us to eat with him the meal that was set for Adam and Eve. Have you ever thought about the Eucharist like that? That it is a law about eating? It's the one thing he commands us. He says, do this in memory of me. So like when God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's God's command and there's the food. Well, when Jesus says, do this in memory of me, there's God's command and there's the food. Isn't it interesting how this sacrificial meal Jesus has put together for his disciples and for us goes back before the fall. Because so much of Jesus' preaching is about undoing the effects of the fall. And why it is that when we eat, we eat mindful that we live in a world where we have, we Catholics eat cheeseburgers. But our sacrificial meal is about this restoration of the world to come. And that's why in this world, we live in this fallen world where we have politicians that do not edify us sometimes. We have lots of Catholics that don't edify us. Priests and bishops don't edify us sometimes. We live in a fallen world, but we also, when we gather in the church, our eyes are not fixed on this world. When we eat the Eucharist, we're looking at something that's coming. And so now 
I want to turn to this last line of St. Paul's I conclude, because I think it's a very important one. And here's, do you remember what he said at the end? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. St. Paul, kind of full of yourself, aren't you? We can understand why we should be imitating Christ, but why should we be imitating you? Let's pull all this together. So imitating Christ was St. Paul. You know, it's a feature of rabbinic teaching that you'd go live with a rabbi and learn from him. The disciples following Jesus through the countryside in Galilee and all the way to Jerusalem and to his death had an example of how an adult's supposed to live their lives. That's why St. Paul, I mean, Jesus always says, come follow me, because you're supposed to get right behind him, you're supposed to watch what he does, and you do the same thing. St. Paul gets it because he's a Pharisee, right? And so he says, be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Jesus. And that's why he talks about his suffering and he talks about his rejection. Because if you go through Luke and Acts of the Apostle, Luke consciously uh, shows you all the ways that St. Paul imitates Jesus and why St. Paul is a true teacher of uh, Christianity by not just what he says, by what he does. And so we really ought to avoid eating with demons. We don't participate in these illicit entertainments, whether we're eating with our eyes, our mouth, our ears. We don't do what the demons do. But we do follow after Jesus, which I always love Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa. It's just don't do anything uh, you know is wrong. Pray every day. And uh, that is about as simple as you can make the Christian walk. You know, this imitation of Christ uh, is really fundamentally about imitating Jesus in prayer, right? Because prayer is Congress, conversation with God. You enter into the life of the Trinity when you pray. So have you ever thought about why it is that the rosary is such a great prayer. It's because the rosary is built around all the mysteries of Christ, the joyous, the luminous, the sorrowful, and the glorious mysteries, that as you pray, you enter into these different parts of Jesus's life. And hopefully at some point, it will occur to each of us how um, we don't imitate him well sometimes. And I hope some hope that comes from imitating him well. You know, it's uh, we are in a difficult position uh, as Catholics trying to live our faith life in a world that may, is pretty toxic. Pornography, um, disrespect for the church, uh, atheism, agnosticism, people that don't think religion matters, all of these things are discouraging. None more so, I think, than life issues like abortion and the death penalty and how we deal with migrants on the border, how we treat people. So no administration is going to be perfect, and we really need to trust our bishops because these are easy calls for armchair quarterbacks to make. But the bishops have to do it for real, for an entire community. You know, the Holy Father of the Vatican, they have to deal with the communists in China. They had to deal with the Soviet Union. And, you know, remember St. John Paul? Uh, he spoke to the people and about the conversion of people. He couldn't force governments to do anything. 
It was changing people's heart that mattered. Jesus was born into a Roman empire where gladiators killed each other for the entertainment of screaming, bloodthirsty crowds. Um, in his world, abortion and infanticide were not only practiced, but uncommented on outside the Jewish world. It's why in the Jewish world, looking out at the Gentiles, their dining with demons, their sexual morality, they were despicable in Jewish eyes. We don't think about it like that. The closest we get is when we look out into the world, we see how wrong things go between man and women and how it is that this ancient, this, these ancient practices that are so disordered affects our own communities. So I think the most positive thing any of us can do is pray for our bishops and our Holy Father. They are our leaders. And in imitation of Christ, we have to try to live uh, with love in an imperfect world where as armchair quarterbacks, we don't get to make the call. And so remember that Jesus has made this world clean. He's called us out and made us clean. There is no one out there that is not made for God. There is no one out there not made to be a missionary disciple of Jesus. So let's not call unclean what God has made clean. Let's instead call people to live the great vocation that God has given them. So this has been Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold.